The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Carolyn A. Brent. Uh, she's an award-winning American author, speaker, radio host, and broadcast TV analyst, as well as caregiver and elder care legislation advocate. Her new book is The Caregiver's Companion, Caring for Your Loved One Medically, Financially and emotionally, while also by caring for yourself. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Carolyn. I am honored to be a part of the, uh, your show and your guests. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, it's, I mean, you've written several books on elder care and taking care of uh, the elderly, and also you've been involved in legislation. Um, and apparently, well, we are an aging population. So, of course, obviously, your book is, is, is timely and topical. Uh, 13 million baby boomers throughout the United States, and maybe even more, are caring for elderly patients. So we have throngs of adult caregivers who are struggling to uh, determine whether their parents are fit to remain living alone, whether they can take care of themselves. And it is really a multifaceted problem, which, of course, you've written about in uh, several of your books. So let's start with the caregiver's companion. How do you address some of these issues that we're struggling with today with our elder, uh, elder parents? Well, the way I address it, Catherine, I always have a person, or even when I'm on television, regardless of where I am, I always start out like this. I said, every day here in America, all of us have a routine that we're doing. We're getting up, we're going to work, we're going to school, we're getting married, we're planning for our future, we're planning to graduate, we're planning to have babies, we're planning everything. But then that one time, when was the last time anybody had that unexpected emergency telephone call. All of us have had some kind of call in our lifetime that has told us that either there's an emergency, something has happened, you got to come, come, come home from work, from school, or maybe you got to go to ER. That is what I share with Americans. We all have to prepare ourselves. I know that for many, many years, people are talking about, oh, how do you get a resistant parent to let you help them? I say this, Catherine, when all of us, regardless of our age, when we have our own paperwork, legal documents in, in place, then we could go to our aging loved one or the person that we care about that has a chronic you know, illness and say, you know what, I went to see uh, an attorney today just asking questions and look at this packet that they've given to me. Can I share it with you, Mom and Dad? This is what they've done for me. I know what my five end-of-life wishes are going to be just in case an emergency happens and one of you need to come to the hospital and check on me. You know, I have it all together. Can I share, show, show you what the attorney gave me and tell you what it's all about? That's how we have 
we start that conversation. We must, Catherine, get our own legal documents in order first. And when we have done our own homework, then it's easier to be prepared and have the conversation with all of the family members. So, so I'm an advocate. With, we, we've got to do our own paperwork first. All right, we have to do our own paperwork. I agree with you. Take it, but you, it sounds like you're talking about having that conversation. That le- that it, it's a legal conversation. Is that what we're talking about? Like end of care kinds of uh, issues. We're in terms about, of, yeah, absolutely. It, and, and I'll go on. And the reason why I'm so adamant about that, my father had that same conversation with me when I was 18 years old. I didn't want to hear that conversation, Catherine. Because I, I thought I'm only 18. This is some heavy stuff. And Dad was 50 at the time. But I told myself this when Dad said, Carolyn, at my end of life, I don't want to be, you know, go on. A, a, I don't want you to, to tell them to try to save my life. I don't want to be resuscitated. I don't want any of those things. And Dad put it in writing. And he put it in writing legally with the federal government because he was a veteran. However, Catherine, this is what the problem is. And this is why I became an advocate. He didn't put it in, or we didn't know to put it in with the state. And as a result, when Dad had uh, that end-of-life crucial uh, emergency, and, and I, at the time I was 51 years old and Dad was in his 80s, my family literally attacked me because they thought, well, this is not what we want for Dad. So because we did not know to put it in both federal and state, I got to tell you, that's a huge problem that people don't realize because the federal government doesn't really share with the, the state what the veterans uh, have in place. And the state is saying, well, we don't recognize what the feds have in place for the veteran. That is why I'm an advocate. That is why I'm trying to get laws changed. And that's why I share with folks all around America, make sure all of us have our end-of-life wishes in place. If you're a veteran, in the veterans, uh, the federal government, and also with the state and wh- where you live, that's really important. Okay, and I agree with you. I think all of this is important, but how, you know, timing is important, too, and how do you get families to actually sit down and talk about these end-of-life decisions? At what age? You said you were 18 years old, and you didn't want yes. to hear about Most 18-year-olds don't want to hear about it, uh, what's <laughs> going to happen to their parents who maybe are only, as you say, in their 50s or even, or even younger. So there's a lot it's not simply just sitting down and being able, just being responsible and going to your lawyer and writing a will. There's a lot more involved, and obviously that's what you talk about in the Caregiver's Companion. But uh, how, when do you start having these conversations? Um, and also, people's wishes change. You know, what what a 45 or a 55 or even a 65 year old may say. Oh, I don't want you to do any heroic. Uh, any heroics at the end of my life. I want, you know, I, I'm, and, and you go through all the legal processes that you're talking about, state, federal, whatever it is. And yet, when the time comes, they don't feel that way. They don't want the same thing. Then what happens? I mean, because it's always well, evolving and changing in terms of people's wishes. Uh, you know what? That's absolutely correct. We live in an evolving, changing uh, society, especially when you have multiple marriages. I've been married three times, unfortunately, for me. But you know, or maybe fortunately. Because now I'm single. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fortunately. But th- this is what the key is. I- anytime that there's any life changes, period, that's when everything uh, has to change from a legal standpoint. And the reason why I'm such an uh, advocate in regards to we have to get our own paperwork and, uh, evolving first 
when a person's 21 years old, and let's say that they, a bus runs them over by accident, and that 21-year-old is rushed to the hospital, the first thing the hospital is going to say, who can make decisions for this person legally? And if the mother and the father that's in their 50s say, well, I can make it legally, they're going to say, well, show us the proof. Give us the, the proxy, the medical directive. And if the parent can't come up with a legal document, the hospital's going to say, sorry, we cannot do this. And they're, they're going to get the state involved, and the state will have a stranger to make end-of-life choices for the hospital because the hospital doesn't want to get sued. So this, it, this, this becomes an issue of what does anyone want with their end-of-life because people think that you got to prepare when you're just for older age. People are dying very young at all ages. So that is why I have, and you're right, sitting down having the conversation, that is not an easy thing to do because most people are busy. They live in multiple states, but this is what I advocate for. I share with uh, someone, if there's one person in the family, like the hierarchy or the person that someone respects the most as far as the adult siblings, then that adult sibling, let's say they're 25 years old, if they're only 25 years old, if they take the initiative to read and get their own legal documents together first or even just gather the information, it's all about just having a knowledge base. And when you have that knowledge base, it's something as simple as what are your five wishes? There's an organization called fivewishes.com. I love that organization because what they do, they help families. How do you have that conversation? And I'm going to just share with you quickly. Number one, at your end of life, what do you want your end of life wishes to be? And then the person should be able to say, well, I, I don't want to be resuscitated or I want, my, I, I want hospice or I want my family to get along. I want my kids to get along. Those are key, key little things that families will say, but it's called the five wishes.com. And it really works, and it helps take the edge off of the conversation, Catherine, that we all have to have. Because one thing that is for sure that we've got to pay our taxes, and we also have an end of life. Our life is going to end at some stage. We just don't know. We always hope that we could live this healthy life until we're like in our 80s or 90s or 100 years old healthy. But that's not always the case. People are living longer, but not necessarily in a healthy state. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I guess, uh, are you saying this in the book, in The Caregiver's Companion, that uh, we're not simply talking about the elderly. We, we sort of, in our minds, think about the elderly when we talk about end-of-life care. Uh, but that's not where we could be talking about anybody who's from 18 onward, depending on what the situation is. So, in other Absolutely. words, it has to be like paying your taxes. In other words, if we get it into our sort of our... Uh, group mindset that this is something we take care of, uh, this is just something that we do, um, and it's something that we do just just like paying taxes or paying our mortgage or the other yes. legal things that we're involved in. It, it just becomes a, a way of doing business in the family. Uh, that's what it sounds like anyway. Ab- absolutely. And this is one thing that I've discovered. When families, I've, I've interviewed over 1,500 caregivers worldwide to uh, culminate the uh, Caregiver's Companion. And this is what I found out just from interviewing everyone. They said this, the families that have all of the legal paperwork in order and everybody knows what the other person's doing, 
that's the family that creates family legacy at end of life where people will go to the clergy or the hospital and they're, they're, they're literally helping each other. The family's being a support system for each other. But the families that do not prepare and everybody thinks, well, I'm, mom and dad, I, they want this or my sister want that or the ex-wife wants whatever, that's where the family feud starts. And that right there, that could go on and be passed down from generation to generation to generation. Because I remember when my mother, uh, her father died, and I was just uh, nine years old at the time, didn't understand anything. And I remember my mother and her brother was fighting over a house, and I couldn't understand from a nine-year-old's perspective, why are they fighting over a house when mom has a house and uncle's son has a home? Why are they fighting? Now, as an adult, I understand what happened at that time, you know, what, because it's happened in my family. So that's something that that we could literally break that generational curse that we're passing down to our other family members and our, our seeds that that should not be an option, the fighting, you know, at someone's gravesite or in the hospital. That's not, that shouldn't be an option. It shouldn't be an option, but it seems to me, how can you prevent it from being an option? Like you've mentioned, like multi-generational, and you've also mentioned, I mean, people are get half... 50% of the population, for instance, ends up getting divorced and they get married for a second time or a third time or even more. So you're bringing all the fa- different families in, family <laughs> dynamics change. I yes. mean, I'm just you know, sort of presenting the other side, but it seems almost impossible to get families uh, to agree on what family vacation they're going to take or, uh, you know, right. what car they're going to buy or, uh, you know, simple things like that or even to get along to have a Thanksgiving dinner. How are you going to get them? How, I mean, what you're saying sounds reasonable and the right thing to do, but how do you actually get families to sit down and do this in a practical way? You know what? That right there is like the best case scenario when you can get the family to sit down together. But I'm going to share with you before we get the family sitting down together. Let's say you can never get the family to sit down and be together as one. Then it's left up to the individual, and I'm going to use myself as that example. I do not have children. I am not married. And, and the bottom line is that the person that tried to destroy my life through, you know, the, the, the sibling rivalry, adult sibling rivalry, I had to take my own responsibility as a 58-year-old woman and go to my uh, geriatric attorney, a person that, is, that knows all the loops, holes, and legal boundaries that should go into a will, a trust, and which end of life. And I had to name the people that, it's, that I disinherited because of this. If we don't name them one by one and leave them a penny, then they could fight. Even if you have 20 years of not talking to that person, that person could come and go, that's my twin sister. I love her very much. The courts don't know that. So they're going to, if that person doesn't have their end-of-life wishes in place and document it absolutely correctly to, to save face, then, you know, they're wasting, you could waste a lot of your, your life by not taking care of the business. So that's what I've done to safeguard my end of life wishes and who I want to be my fiduciary and where I want my life's work to go to as far as charities. That's done. So that's where you take your own responsibility if you have that worst case scenario like I do. Now, the families that 
get along. Or let's say that there's a family and that there's like maybe three people in the family that, that literally just wants to stay away. They don't want to have a conversation. There's a couple of suggestions that I have. The one hierarchy or the matriarch in the family have, they could do Skype, they could do conferencecalls.com and say, look, we're going to have a, a family gathering, a family conversation about what my end of life wishes are, because I'm the, the parent, and this is what my wishes are. Now, if the siblings or if the family decides they don't want to get involved, that's when you have is called a sibling contract or a relative contract. That's when you actually state that XYZ family members, they were on the conference call or they were at the family meeting, and Sally Sue has agreed that because she's really good with finances, she's going to handle the finances. John Doe is going to take me to all my medical appointments, whatever the family decides they want to do. And have that in writing. That's something that can definitely work. And the family members that are going to make the biggest stink and, and really get upset about what the family conversation is, that's what you've got to put in writing at that time. It's a, it's a legal contract that you could actually put together because every But if you're putting together every, that, Lee, can I interrupt you? If you put together sure. that legal contract and you're very, very specific as you're deciding, okay, I'm the, I'll take my, myself as the example. I'm head of the household. I'm the mother. I've got, uh, I'm 60 years old and I've got 30 year old children, whatever. And I very specifically say, you know, Bill is going to handle the medical and Joe is going to handle the legal and, and uh, you know, Sally's going to, to take care of other responsibilities. Uh, and then uh, a year later, you know, Sally's the daughter, she becomes incapacitated or she dies or she marries somebody else who really doesn't want to have anything to do with the family. So you have this evolving family situation, then you have to go back every year and change the document, the legal document. You have, is that, Absolutely. Is that, yeah. Absolutely. That's imperative. And the reason, and I love what you said, Catherine, earlier about taxes. Unfortunately, we got to do our taxes every year because our, we, we've got to pay our taxes. We've got to do our taxes. But the bottom line is that we have to do it, period. And if we look at our end-of-life documents, once we get married or someone's died or, or whatever the situation is, and legally change that, what we're doing, we are safeguarding our end-of-life. And the reason why I say we've got to safeguard it, because let's say the multiple marriages, and I've talked to families where... The, the, the parents, they divorced 30 years ago, and then they both have been remarried to other people and have other family members. But the original family feels entitlement to dad's millions, and the fight begins. That's why it's so important to never assume anything. The legal documents really need to be in, uh, in the correct order, especially when there's large sums of money involved. And even AARP told me, uh, uh, Raul Andrews, he is the vice president of the Eastern Division of AARP, he told me that he has seen people fight in court for, like, hats and bobby pins and rollers, just really crazy things that I would think is crazy. But for that person, it's a little bit of legacy of mom and dad's something that they owned. So they'll fight their family member for it. So it's very, very important. I cannot express this enough that we do our own legal documents first, and you must go to the right type of attorney because all 
attorneys are not the same. Most so what's the right type of attorney? You mentioned a geriatric attorney. Would it be that? Is that that's not a trust in the state's attorney, is it? Or that's different. Uh, there's a, they... there's you want you want to get a geriatric attorney that does trust that specializes in trust in trust and estates. So very very specific. In other words, I share with folks to get a, an attorney that is certified in a particular area. For an example, I uh, did not go to a geriatric attorney for my end of life as far as uh, a certified geriatric attorney, but I did go to a certified attorney that has that's licensed in uh, geriatrics, that's licensed, and the only thing he does is trust in wills, trust in wills, end of life. So I felt comfortable because when I moved to Florida, I had to find another attorney with all the laws here in Florida, because all the time you, oh my goodness, I think I have had five uh, trusts uh, completed in my lifetime so far, five, and they're, they're pretty expensive. It cost me at least $2,500 all the time I did my trust, all the time. But it was worth it to me because I am so, I'm such an advocate that you got to prepare for end of life because what happened with my father and me the the paper that my father's wishes that was that was written on wasn't even acknowledged by the state and that's when i said i've got to get this loophole change and i've got to let the american public especially the veterans realize if you have end of life wishes in the federal put that same duplication in with the state to safeguard yourself otherwise I think the problem it's is like- getting people to act on this and to do this uh, uh, Carolyn, is that people, are, you're asking them to prepare for something that they don't want to happen. It's sort of like uh, giving yourself, you know, self-breast examinations. You're looking for something you don't want to find. So you're preparing for something that, and, and so you really want to stay away from it because it's, it's you know, you're afraid, you're fearful, you're terrified. So uh, it, it's, it's sort of that same thing. You're not, you're preparing for your own demise, actually. And that's hard to, for people to wrap their heads around, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, albeit it's important. Um, I hear you. It sounds like, you know, go to your... Go to your lawyer, the appropriate one, every year, just like you go to your for your end of life uh, wishes, um, and make sure that uh, everything is intact in the same way that you go to the accountant every year to well, you know so that actually, you pay your taxes. I I, I need to correct uh, what I said so I could make it very clear. You only go when there's ch- uh, changes only. So once you get it done, let's say that nothing's changed in your life over the past 20 years, everything's exactly the same, your wishes are the same, you don't need to see that attorney uh, ever again, period, because you have it done. But a lot of people, they marry multiple times, like I have, or they've moved to different states, and you've got to know what the state... So anytime your situation changes, that's when you want to go and update your, your end of life. Now, this is what I propose, and I tell people... If they're afraid to handle their, their end-of-life wishes, I'll just put it this way. We're all going to die. That is an absolute fact. So I ask folks, where do you want to be in a nursing home? And if you do, what kind? I ask people to go and visit some of these nursing home, homes. Go to the real expensive ones at $10,000, excuse me, $100,000 a month that 
you know, celebrity clients are staying at where it's fancy and it's beautiful, you know, go and check that out. And then you go to the ones uh, that the state will provide. I, I guarantee you when a person goes and they walk in to a state facility that for people that don't have money and, or maybe they didn't plan anything or maybe they didn't, maybe they had a lot of money and they didn't put their end of life wishes in place and they became incompetent. And this is what a lot of, uh, happens, uh, often folks are taking their loved ones and they could be, uh, they don't have to be old. They could be young and, and have lots of money, but in mental, mentally incompetent and they'll go and have everything switched into their own personal names. And that person that's worked their whole life ends up living poorly because the wrong person manipulated them to get their, to, you know, have everything in their, their name. So this could go into a lot of different layers. That is why I share with folks to take their own responsibility, be responsible for yourself. Know that we are going to, you know, uh, uh, expire one day. We just don't know when it's going to be. But it's Carolyn, can you always... talk? We only have a few more minutes left, so I want to. I know that you have uh, founded your own organization called Caregivers Story. Uh, exactly, what is that? Caregivers Story uh, is a website for everyone to go to and get all the resources uh, from around the world that they would need. It doesn't cost a dime. I am so adamant about knowledge i made it's a library literally it's like a, a big library with attorneys across the country there's things not not even just end of life there's things about fashion re, for reverse mortgage eating being healthy and being fit i'm 58 and i would love for people to go to that website and look and see how i take care of myself at the age of 58 because i look at i want to I want to grow old grace, gracefully, but I want to be healthy. So there's a lot of inspirational things on the Caregiver Story website, and there's a library, uh, it's called a book club, and there's different books from happiness to preparing for end of life to uh, uh, ready, it's called uh, Elder Care Ready, where an attorney wrote something, uh, a book, a fabulous book about just being ready. He's an elder law attorney. 30 years of practice. He wrote his book. I love him dearly. And, you know, so we have a lot of different things. So it's nothing that we're selling. It's an information portal for, for, for a person that, that needs information. And so I imagine you keep this updated in terms of new books about elder care, or end of life, or Absolutely. getting, because, as you say, really, you also, and then you also talk about how to keep yourself well. And as you throughout life, I guess, before you get to the end of life, but how to maintain yourself, well, medically, financially, emotionally, all of that, caring for yourself, um, as well as if you're in the position of caring for somebody else. Yes, absolutely. And I'm also building, uh, it's called the Via de Laga Spiritual Health and Wellness Resort coming next year, and it's for the baby boomers that need to reboot their life and, and just start from ground zero because I'm not bragging about being healthy and beautiful. I'm just basically stating a fact. I'm bone on bone in my spine, but yet I work out, I take care of myself, I eat right, and I keep negativity out of my life. That's the number one and the stress. So I don't look like the average 58-year-old woman that's walking around, and I will be 59 January 6th. Yeah, I think that's true. I have to say, because obviously before the show, I went online and uh, was uh, looking at your site and looking at you, and you 
absolutely do not look like a 58-year-old woman. So, uh, <laughs> and you, Catherine, uh, you have to take 10 years off of the 58, uh, really. Uh, yeah, well, so you the, are, those, those yeah. pictures were taken two weeks ago, literally in uh, Daytona Beach. So I keep everything uh, so you, updated. Everything's good, updated. Good, so you didn't put pictures up of 20 years ago, and right? No. <laughs> <laughs> Which one no. could do. So, All right, well, we yes. do have to say goodbye. It's been great talking to you this morning. I'll mention the book again, The Caregiver's Companion, Caring for Your Loved One Medically, Financially, and Emotionally While Caring for Yourself, Carolyn Brent. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. And thank you. You, got, you have a blessed day, okay? Bye-bye. I will. Thank you. Uh, we are going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, my next guest is Allison Weeble. She's author of Living a Healthy Life with HIV. She's an RN, PhD, and is currently an assistant professor of nursing at Case Western Reserve University. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Allison. Thank you. So t- this morning we we'll talking about living a healthy life with HIV. And, of course, one of the problems, and I have had a lot of experience actually doing that uh, from a social work perspective, but, uh, which is different than the nursing uh, but there's a lot of stigma and discrimination, and it's been going on for years and years when it comes to HIV, whether people are still afraid they're going to catch it, you know, even if they're in the, and it, it boggles my mind, but they still do are afraid to touch someone who has HIV. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you can go on and on with examples. I'm not going to do that. But So your book is obviously very important. So living a healthy life with HIV, where should we start? 
Well, I, you know, I, I, I do think the stigma is a good place to start because what I think what our book really shows is that HIV is not a disease to fear. It's a disease that's entirely manageable if you happen to become infected with HIV. And it's actually incredibly, uh, we, have, we have incredible methods to prevent HIV infection today. And I just don't think the message has gotten out um, to, to the larger audience that HIV is, is entirely preventable with our great new biomedical therapies, things like taking a medication called pre-exposure prophylaxis if you're if you're engaged in a relationship with a with a partner who has HIV or if you are if you do have HIV the treatments are are phenomenally better than what they were in the early 80s and 90s um People living with HIV today take one pill once a day. After after you know, that first few months of getting used to the pill, there are usually very minimal side effects. And people today are, are living uh, healthier, fuller lives. They're um, they're going back to work. They're volunteering. They're taking care of their families. They're taking care of their kids and their grandchildren. And I think you know probably the the best. Uh, best story that we could have is that, you know, half of the people living with HIV today are over the age of 50. A quarter of those are over the age of 55. So this is a disease where people are living long, healthy, full lives. But the, the caveat there is that you have to know you have HIV and be in, uh, be, uh, in treatment for that. Yeah. So let's backtrack. Okay. That's the overview, mm-hmm. I guess, of the statistics of w- w- how you treat HIV, who has it, et cetera. But, okay, so HIV, how do we, how, let's go back, uh, how do we get HIV? How do we become HIV yeah. positive? What are the only only ways in which we can become HIV positive? HIV is transmitted in body fluids, so blood, uh, semen, vaginal fluid, and breast milk. Um, so the ways we can we can share those are through um, things like blood transfusions, uh, sharing if you are sharing needles for some reason, um, and then sex and breastfeeding. We've gotten really good at controlling uh, uh, HIV from breastfeeding. Almost no babies are born um, in the United States who have HIV today. Uh, so we've, we've, we've kind of minimized the breastfeeding risk for infection. So the ones we're really working on are, are sexual transmission and intravenous drug use. I think earlier this year we saw an outbreak in Indiana where there was a lot of HIV being transmitted um, because of, of increased substance use, so they implemented a number of um, uh, kind of emergent procedures that we know are evidence-based, things like needle exchanges to prevent um, people sharing that. And then we, know, we also, in the United States and in, in most countries around the world, screen our blood banks. So we actually do a really good job of screening all blood sources for HIV. So the risk of getting it from a transfusion is, is almost, almost none. So okay, where so a lot almost, of our prevent... Yeah. But what about sorry. sex? Well, I, well, okay. What, what, let, let's because most people, not everybody, are, are fortunately are intravenous uh, drug users. But most mm-hmm. people engage in sexual activity, and they start at a younger and younger age. Let's say kids are starting right. to to have sex at, well, at least in high school or in, in mm-hmm. college. So let's start there because if mm-hmm. that's one of the main, obviously, that ways of contracting HIV. What are we doing to prevent it, or how, what do we do? Or well, the, the, the I think the best way to prevent it in that group is to start by start early, letting people know that anytime you have sex, you are at risk for having HIV. So if you're going to have sex, you need to protect yourself. Um, barrier methods like condoms are very good at pre- at preventing uh, HIV, but they have to be used consistently. Um, each time someone engages in sex, and then now we also know that there are there's a there's a medication called Truvada that we can give people. Now I'm not sure if it's approved. I don't think it's approved for children yet. But when people start to turn 18 to 24, which is where a lot of the transmission is happening, they can take a pill called Truvada, which is a pre-prevention pill um, that would that 
that virtually stops sexual transmission of HIV. The other thing that prevents um, uh, HIV in people who are engaging in sex is to is for the person who is HIV positive to have what's called um, an undetectable HIV viral load or not being able to find any HIV in their blood, and that's a blood test that we do. So we know if they Wait. take their medication. Go ahead. No, explain that. So you're saying somebody yes. already has HIV, and you're dating somebody, and you're deciding, well, considering having sex with them. Mm-hmm. Well, do you always yeah. ask your, I mean, what do you do socially, for instance? I mean, do you always say to somebody, uh, are you HIV positive? Uh, how do I find out whether you are or you aren't? Or how does that work? Socially. Yeah, so th- so socially, we, we asking questions of of, a, of your sexual partner is a really is a really important part of I think a healthy sexual relationship. So asking questions: Have you been tested for HIV? Have you been tested for any uh, a number of other STDs, which are also on the rise in that in the youth population? And then uh, asking them about their sexual history. Um, these are mature conversations, but I think that it's it's important for for people at a very young age to hear that that's part of you know having sex is part it requires responsibility too, and having these conversations is important. Um, and then there are also at-home tests now, too. So people, if they wanted to, could go and buy an HIV test at home. And they could, they could um, if they chose to with their partner, they could, they could see if the other person was at least preliminarily positive with that test. How accurate are the at-home tests? Let's say you're sitting down. Well, I mean, that sounds like a good idea uh, with the person that you're potentially going to have a sexual, intimate relationship with. So you're right there, and you know that they're, well, not lying or telling you a story or afraid to tell you the truth of whether or not they're positive. Uh, how accurate is the test, the home test? Is it 90%? Yeah, they're, they're fairly accurate. I mean, the, the FDA approved them a few years ago, so they're, I, I, I think they're probably in the range of 80 to 90% accuracy. I'm not exactly sure the number, but it's probably in the high range because the FDA did approve it. Um, so it's, it's, a very, it's a fairly accurate test. It, well, after, if someone were to test positive with a home test, the recommendation is that they go see their health care provider and get what's called a, a confirmatory test. Um, but it's a, it's a really phenomenal – it is an option for people who, who want to just – protect themselves in an extra way and, and engage in that conversation. So this, you talk about engaging in conversation, and then, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of talk about parents. Obviously, they should be engaging their children in conversation yeah. about, uh, about sex and responsible sex. This has to be part of the conversation then, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I, it's, unfortunately, in the Internet today, sex is, is, is all over the place. So I think it's, it's probably never too early to start Talking to children, uh, I mean, uh, you know, uh, who are you know, probably twelve or so and above, who are in, we know are are engaging in sex. Talk to them about kind of what safe sex is, what your responsibilities are, what what the risks are, what you can do to protect yourself, who and, and, and who you can talk to, how you know you're ready for sex. I mean, I, I, hearing that information from from your parents or, the, or your guardian or, or those who are kind of mentors in your life is, I think, a really important way to help normalizing safe sex so people aren't engaging in unsafe sex at a young age. And, and I just, you know, I, I do want to point out that youth ages, you know, 13 to um, 24 are increasingly diagnosed with HIV and other sexually transmitted diseases. So engaging in those conversations early is really, really important. I guess one thing you could say, and if you're having difficulty and you feel like you can't talk to somebody you're going to have an intimate relationship with about this, and maybe you shouldn't be having the relation, maybe you shouldn't be having sex with them if you feel uncomfortable and unable to do it. Right? I mean, that may Absolutely. be part of it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's why having a, I think a, having a healthy sexual relationship does involve discussion about all of these issues. 
All right, well, let's get on to some of the other questions because I know a mm-hmm. lot of people w- want to know the answers to these. But, you know, once you're diagnosed as having HIV and you know there's still stigma attached, that people are mm-hmm. st- even given all the information that you've given us, and as you say, there's a lot on the net and you can go online and find it. We still, It's still terrifying. I, I mean, did I hear you say that you can now, instead of taking a, uh, I always, you know, the terminology, you know, a, a, a cocktail, a uh, uh, sort of a pharmaceutical cocktail, which you have to take every day in order to mm-hmm. to, to live with HIV. Not true. Did you say you take one pill a day? Right. One- it is. So so we have um, so we have the cocktail in one pill essentially. So there are three or four HIV medications in one pill that people can take. And we've had uh, the first one was approved in 2005, and we've had a number of them approved since then. But it's one pill once a day. And, and when I worked in the clinic, you know, it, there was usually a, a month or two. Uh, period where people would experience some side effects, but after that, it was it was just like taking you know a, a pill for heart disease. But what about now? HIV positive is different than actually having full blown AIDS. So we're just talking. We are talking about HIV positive. But now, if right. you have AIDS, that's different. Mm-hmm. Now you have the disease. Am I right? Is it then the treatment? It, it, yeah. So HIV is the virus. Um, so if you have HIV, you're, it means we found the HIV virus somewhere in your blood um, and that that virus can affect your immune system or the part of your body that normally fights off other infections. So if, if, the, if the virus really starts to overtake your immune system and, and kind of weaken your immune system, you're more likely to get diseases, things like certain pneumonias and certain cancers um, that normally we could fight off. And when you, when you start to develop those, then you develop AIDS, which is the Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. That's the medical syndrome when someone's immune, set, immune system is so weak that they can't fight off infections that we normally could. And that does require additional medications, depending on, on what, the, what the diseases are that you're experiencing. But we also give more um, like preventative medications at that point, too. What about life expectancy? Uh, let's say mm-hmm. if you're HIV positive, uh, you yeah. may never develop AIDS, uh, the full-blown AIDS. Um, and if you take care of your, it sounds like if you obviously take care of yourself and monitor yourself and all do all the good things that you should be doing, um, is, the, is your life expectancy the same as someone who doesn't yeah. have, isn't HIV positive? Yeah, so we know that in kind of the United States and in the developed world that actually the life expectancy does approximate um, someone who is not infected with HIV now. And that's come out in the last few years. So the life expectancy is, is full. Uh, there is, again, the, the, the thing being that you, the caveat being that someone is diagnosed and, on, and treated. But if that's true, people now are dying from cardiovascular disease, from strokes, from cancer, from kidney disease, the things that people not living with HIV have also been dying from in, in high numbers. Okay, well, we're talking to Allison Weevil, and I didn't mention this before, but she's, uh, maybe I did, RN, PhD, Assistant Professor of Nursing at Case Western Reserve University. Uh, lots of questions uh, about her new book, Living a Healthy Life with HIV. Okay, okay. now that, this is a big question. Who do I tell if I have HIV? I mean, that's something that you answer in the book, too. I mean, mm-hmm. do you have to tell people you're going for a job, you're going to be the school nurse, you're going to be, or how about this, you're a doctor, uh, you, you are a physician, you're an OBGYN, uh, and you are HIV positive. Do you have to tell, or should you tell, or Well, the, that's the, the do, do you have to disclose professionally? Um, it, it depends a little bit on the job and what the rules are in each state. Um, there are some states where, that, where you do have to disclose that. Um, but in general, no, you don't have to tell people you have HIV. It's up to you entirely to to disclose on your own terms. 
And I think that, that's, that's a really important per- point because people don't know, um, you know, if, what, what individual safety situation is. So to force someone to disclose or to disclose their status for them is, is, not, a, is, not, a healthy, um, is not a healthy outcome. So to choose who you want to disclose to is, is, is very important. But we also know that when people disclose to those they, they love and they trust, that they are much more likely to engage in all of the health-promoting behaviors that help people live those long, healthy, happy lives with HIV. So is, disclosure is, is, a very, is a very important part of managing HIV, but it has to be on, on the patient's own terms. Um, and, and I think a really good place to start is many, of, many uh, clinics – uh, in the United States, have physicians and they have social workers who can help them figure out who those safe people are in their community and in their, in their family and then um, help, help practice how to disclose the status to them because it is scary. I mean, this is, this is the hardest thing someone who is newly diagnosed goes through is figuring out if they can tell people and will they lose those people. What about your children? Let's say you're HIV. When do you tell your children that you're HIV positive? It, um, I mean, or is there an the, age? Yeah. I mean, the answer is it depends on your children. Many of the women that I've worked with in in research and then clinically have waited till their kids are in their teens to disclose to them um, that that they, their mother, have HIV. But I think it depends a lot on on, uh, family dynamics and what's going on and how mature the kids are and if they they know other people who are living with other chronic illnesses so they can explain it to them in a way that is is not scary to the children. Because you know, sometimes once you tell your children, it really does get out, leak out, and your 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 daughter's mm-hmm. going to tell her best friend, or you know, it, it usually doesn't necessarily stay just within the family. So you right, maybe... and, I, and that, that those are certainly some of the deliberations. I know some of our some of our patients have gone through, um, and 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 they the family usually comes to an understanding about who you know, who they should tell, under what conditions they should tell other people outside the family. But those are all, those are all um, uh, conversations that the people at the clinic can help uh, um, someone negotiate. And then also uh, there is a lot of support groups for not just people living with HIV, but also their families to help them understand that too. Because right, I know specifically you also have, I think you've written a paper on understanding the management of chronic disease in women living with HIV yeah. AIDS. Uh, what are some of the specific issues that are related to women as opposed to, say, men? Yeah, I mean, the, some of the big ones that we've, we've found in the last few years, really, I mean, women have a unique set of social roles. They are, they are mothers. Um, they are daughters. They and all of this kind of has a certain amount of caregiving involved. Uh, so they have a, they have stresses from taking care of and, and people. Women in my study, they, they have stresses from taking care of kids and grandkids, but they also take care of their moms or their or their fathers or other aunts in their family. And so trying to take care of themselves by also trying to take care of all the other people in their lives can, can make it hard to you know go see the doctors and get the lab checkups that they need to do, as well as doing all the other health promotion activities that we know are increasingly important, like eating a healthy diet and exercising and um, taking time for yourself and stress management. So that's the other, the other, the other piece that um, women uniquely experience is there are much higher rates of, of uh, physical and emotional trauma that women living with HIV experience. And so um, they Dealing with the emotional and mental health symptoms of that on top of the HIV is just really hard. So in the last few years, there's been a model developed called trauma-informed care that many uh, HIV providers are encouraged to use. And I think it's adopting, uh, being adopted kind of in a, in a 
widely throughout the U.S. to really help providers understand um, how uh, past or current trauma influences how someone takes care of their HIV status to be more sensitive in, in their recommendations and the supports that they provide to help women who have experienced trauma or are experiencing trauma um, uh, deal with that in a healthy way. So it would seem to me that if you are a woman who is suffering or from or has the chronic disease HIV or is HIV positive um, or has AIDS, that you really do have to be really, I guess, concerned or focused and really make sure that you pick out the, pro- the, the health care provider for you. Like you, you really need to, don't, don't you need to go to someone, whether it's a primary oh, yeah. care physician, who really kn- knows all about what we've been talking about today and not just, you know, I, I think that would be critical if, if you were in that yeah. position. Yeah. So, I mean, so there is an HIV physician certification. Um, there, are, there are physicians and nurse practitioners who specialize in HIV care, and they are the ones who are, are most familiar with um, like the antiretroviral medications or those cocktail medications, and they're the ones who are most familiar with some of the prevention strategies. But they also, increasingly, we're starting to see clinics that are um, HIV clinics that bring in other other specialists who, all, who can provide, for example, like an, an OBGYN who specializes in women living with HIV to do annual health, because there are some more annual health screenings that women living with HIV have to go through. So they bring a specialist into the clinic. So it's a safe place, but that, but that provider also has specialized knowledge about the, the physical and emotional needs that women living with HIV experience. We're starting to see this also with specialists like cardiologists and um, hepatologists liver disease and heart disease, because we know that uh, people living with HIV are at much higher risk for developing those chronic illnesses as well. So bringing those specialists into the HIV clinic, again, creates a safe space to uh, um, discuss some of the other health concerns, but it also helps those providers develop a specialized knowledge and what the unique needs of a person living with HIV are. And those, and uh, that sort of brings me into my next question about things mm-hmm. change and evolve and they don't get better, they get worse as you get older. I probably shouldn't, uh, not politically correct to say that, but it's true. Um, or it's more of a struggle to stay healthy, perhaps. I mean, uh, yeah. so in, do, in saying that, like as you get older, you know, how does HIV affect older people? Because your immune system just naturally is, uh, mm-hmm. is, is not as good as when you're older, and you acquire different uh, ailments and all of those kinds of things. So then you have to put in the mix HIV, how does that work? I mean, how does that fit in as, let's let's say, people 55 and over or 60 and over? So this is, is, I mean, this is a great problem to have, but it's one that we're just starting to answer because only recently have we started to have a lot of people living with HIV into their 50s and 60s. What we do know is that people living with HIV do seem to, physically age faster. So their immune system is aging faster. They show markers of aging about five years earlier than people who are not infected with HIV. They okay, also give us develop... An, well, give, give us an example. Like, give us a, an example. What would be... Yeah, the, so they're developing yeah. um, uh, dementia-related cognitive impairments earlier, about five... You know, if, if the normal age is 60, they're developing at about 55. So we're starting to see those signs earlier. We see cardiovascular disease developing. We see strokes happening earlier. We see heart attacks happening earlier. So we do, we do see a lot of those diseases of, of the elderly happening earlier in this group, and we don't know why it is. We, expect, we think it's because the HIV virus is um, causing, causing the immune system to wear down more quickly, more quickly, but we don't exactly know what those mechanisms are. So 
you know, we're seeing the other the other kind of really important one is we're seeing bone disease, lots of osteoarthritis, lots of osteoporosis, bone fractures earlier in people living with HIV. So, you know, things that we do to normally prevent or to, to slow down bone disease, taking um, taking vitamins, doing weight bearing exercises, we're encouraging people living with HIV to start those as soon as possible because we know that they're at a much higher risk of developing um, osteoporosis more quickly. What about the children of Mm. parents who have HIV? Are you noticing anything, even though they may not be HIV positive, for instance, and I don't know how many years you've been able to study this, uh, probably, you know, not that long perhaps, but do you see any differences in in the children who of of parents who have HIV or are HIV positive? We, we, you know, we, I don't know that 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 study has been done, but I know from our clinical work, no, there was, there's, there's no difference. The one difference I will say that's been changing is more women are, more HIV positive women are having children now. And that, and that, that's a good thing because they're safely having children. Their children are not being infected with HIV. They're fulfilling all their family goals. And I, and, and it seems to be, um, something that, that's been helping to normalize this infection for so many people. Because I think, you know, early on, women with HIV, Really couldn't uh, have kids, and now that now that they can, they're they're having um, uh, the families that they've always wanted, and finding supportive partners in that. You mentioned something right at the beginning of the interview, and we only have a couple mm-hmm. few minutes left. But what about oh, breastfeeding, okay. breast milk? Did you say that baby? T- talk to us about that because they're having children. Yeah. They want to women want to breastfeed their babies. What are the comp- are there any complications related to that? And if so, what are they? Yeah, so in, 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 um, in countries like United States where we have easy access to high quality, high nutritious formula, we do not encourage breastfeeding. Um, uh, we, we encourage people to use formula because there is a risk. Uh, if a woman wanted to breastfeed in a country where they didn't have access, what we typically advise is that they take, uh, that their, their HIV virus be unsuppressed. Again, meaning we can't find any in their blood before they breastfeed. Um, but if, if there is a safe alternative, a safe, consistent alternative, we, we recommend doing um, uh, formula feeding. Okay, so it, it, it just varies depending on the culture, the country, all of those kinds of things, right? Um, right really, really, yeah, safe access to, to, to nutritious milk, yeah. And one last question. What about a vaccine? Are we near having a, a, getting a vaccine for HIV or not, or where do we stand here in the United States? Yeah, we are actively working on it. There have been some um, breakthroughs in the last five years, but we're, but there isn't a an agent that's in uh, uh, widespread testing yet that I'm aware of. So, how far away would you say we are from? Or can you make that guesstimate? Yeah, it's 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 tough. I mean. Um, this is this is the one thing that science has been working on for a real long time, and I know that um, AMFAR and the NIH have really doubled down their efforts to try to just try to find that vaccine or that or that cure. Um, and we've had a couple of models. Um, there's a there's a case in Berlin where a, a, a gentleman underwent a, a bone marrow transplant, and the donor did not have HIV, so they have not been able to find any any HIV. And I think it's been five or six years now in his blood. So that's kind of the model that a lot of these um, vaccine and cure efforts are are following. And I think that we're getting closer. So you know, I, I'm I'm very hopeful that in my lifetime we will have a vaccine or a cure. Um, but I don't know other than that how close we are. Well, it's been great talking to you today, uh, Allison Weeble, and she is uh, a RN, PhD, Assistant Professor of Nursing at Case Western Reserve University. Uh, she is author of Living a Healthy Life with HIV. You can buy the book, what, online? 
bookstores Yeah, everywhere. on Amazon or on our publisher, Bull, Bull Publishing website. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. Have a good day. You, you too. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.